0: The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan. And DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL. And then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 385. My name is Chris. And my name is Noah. Hey Noah, guess what? Coming up on the big show today, we're going to take a look at OpenSUSE's huge, ambitious project, the OpenSUSE Leap Beta. They just released the new beta. It came out a couple of days ago, and they are asking folks to check it out. You just heard it on Noah's computer right there. We have been running it all week long. We're going to take a deep dive into what the goals are of this ambitious project, and then what is it like to actually use the Leap Beta day to day? They have something really unique they're working on here, and so we're going to tell you all about that. Then in the news segment, there is some big things coming up this week that we're going to cover on the big show. Did you know that a very prominent Linux journalist believes it will never, ever be the year of the Linux desktop? We're going to break that down. A security firm has discovered that a botnet powered by Linux machines that have been compromised is throwing 150 gigabits of attack at its targets. And then there's an Internet of Things vigilante out there, open source malware spreading from Linux router to Linux router, fixing things up. And we have a little bit of bad news for some of our audience, but we're going to tell you about that as well. Plus, we're going to do some road trip updates. We got feedback. But before all of that, Noah, you know what we got? The picks. The PICS. And this first pick, Noah, you are you're introducing me to something that I apparently should have known about a long time ago. Somehow I've been on the Internet and I've never heard of Smarter Every Day.
1: And you have linked us to an episode of Smarter Every Day that runs Linux. I have. So um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Smarter Every Day, Smarter Every Day is uh, a, a a YouTube channel, I suppose, that is run by a guy who, uh, I, I believe he's a, uh, a former uh, 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 aerospace engineer. And essentially what he does is he uses his talents and, and intelligence to take ridiculously complicated things and turn them into something that anyone can understand. And this week, uh, a viewer submitted a, a link to one of his Smart Days. Yeah, episode everydays.
0: 142 of his.
1: Yeah, correct. And if you look here, you can see he's actually running, or not he, but the the guy that that uh, that he went to explain this is actually. We'll pause right there. You can see that's definitely Unity. That's Ubuntu. Ubuntu, um, and it, it's 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 kind of cool because from afar, I, I have always enjoyed uh, his production. He did a, a, a slow mo thing of of tattoos, um, and he did a thing explaining on why. Uh, a balloon when you drive forward in a car the balloon will actually go forward and when you go back it will actually go back and so his channel is super super interesting but the fact that he found linux so interesting i thought was pretty cool and so if you haven't seen his channel definitely check it out and definitely go watch number 142 because you get to see linux and the thing that he's doing with linux is actually pretty cool
0: now i'm on a i was on a uh, i'm on a slower connection today so i was jumping around and i guess like the linux shows up about two and a half minutes into the clip yep so if you if you want to jump right to the good stuff that's where you go. Uh, and actually, I should probably say right now. Um, hopefully, I don't drop out during the show. I'm on. I'm at a KOA, uh, a, you know, a campsite for trailers, and um, I'm on their Wi-Fi. Their free Wi-Fi that you get as part of the nightly rate here. And so far, although my ping time is around 151 milliseconds, I'm at zero percent packet loss, which last night. When I was prepping for the Linux Action Show, I was at about 70% packet loss. So hopefully everything goes pretty smooth. But I am again broadcasting from Bozeman, Montana. We are on our way back now to the JB1 studio. The meetup in Grand Forks went wonderful. Noah, you were an excellent host, as always, and Grand Forks was very quaint. Oh, well, thank you. We had a good pizza meetup
1: there. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, the, and got to meet a bunch of really cool people, some of which came as far as, as Minneapolis. To From the Twin Cities to come say hello. What did you think of the pizza? I never even got a chance to ask you. Some of the best pizza I've ever had. I got the T-Rex. Absolutely delicious. But you know what was...
0: And I'm not usually this kind of guy, but the stuffed mushrooms were amazing. But uh, I, while we were in Grand Forks, uh, Noah did a little electrical upgrade to the rover. And so the the entire production of the Linux Action Show today is being done under Linux. The, uh, the video capture and the stream is done under Linux using OBS. And my remote broadcast is all being done under Linux, all powered by DC, totally off the grid, totally self-sustained, running off, running off DC power. It's really cool. Gosh, that makes
1: me happy. Yeah, it's fun. It is, it, is, it is rewarding to do that. And you know what else? Not only is it rewarding, we are, uh, we are subject to no one right now. That's like, right. There is no company that can take us down.
0: That's right, that's right, because we, we're, we're running off our own Mumble server. We're using mm-hmm. OBS and, and, and the Linux, and uh, also, very, very nice of Noah. Like I said, he was a great host. He gave me a dedicated laptop already wired for DC that I've been able to run the OpenSUSE Elite Beta on all week. So both Noah and I have been immersed in it, using it as our daily driver. I've been using it on the road, and it's, I'm going to get more into this in the review when we get to that. But I have to say, this was the perfect timing for me to use a distribution like this. It could not have been better timing for me to switch to this uh, in my, you know, in my on online offline where I don't ever know if I'm really going to have connectivity. I'll I'll explain more in the review, but it, it just, it nailed a sweet spot for me and uh, I'll, I'll go into detail, but it was great. It was great seeing everybody. It's been a long road trip. We're about two days out from the studio now. And uh, we also just got done spending some time in Yellowstone and uh, the Grand Tetons and uh, just a pro tip. Don't plan to podcast from there. You have zero connectivity. Zero. But you guys did great on Linux Unplugged, so you didn't need me anyways. You guys rocked it. We did all right. All right. So uh, why don't we uh, get into the picks? And uh, by the way, we have something kind of fun coming up. Since uh, I've been on the road, I I reached out to the production staff and I said, hey, guys, let's do a series of your favorite apps on Linux. Because Noah and I are always the ones picking the desktop app pick, you know, the ones we use. So I thought, well, let's get some input from the producers. So uh, we have, for the next couple of weeks now, we have picks from the producers. So we're going to start this week with uh, uh, with rot- producer Rotten Corpse's pick, and it's a really handy one, especially if you care about uh, color and aesthetics, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. Uh, and then we're going to go through another series of picks that were submitted by the team. I'm really excited. So we're going to do this for a couple of weeks, and I think you guys are going to hear about some great apps. But before we get to that, why don't we take a moment and thank our first sponsor, and then we'll get into the business. So our first sponsor this week, as always, is the good folks over at DigitalOcean. Now, DigitalOcean just straight up rocks. It's simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up your own cloud server. That's a Linux rig up in the cloud that you have full root access to, running on top of the KVM stack, using Linux, all right on top of SSDs. And you could start in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. For $5 a month, You can get 20 gigabytes of an SSD because they're all SSDs. You get 512 megabytes of RAM and that Linux kernel, man, it can work with that like a champ, one CPU and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and they have a brand new one in Canada. They call it Tor One. It's up in Toronto. And I'm just going to say it. I'll admit it right here. Alan Jude totally called it. He knew this was happening and he called it. And the best part about DigitalOcean is that interface. It's so intuitive. And power users can replicate the interface on a much larger scale. Like You could even snap it into your existing management infrastructure. You could have just a simple bash script. I mean, the, the, the range of possibilities is endless. And if you're kind of lazy like me, they have a ton of great open source community apps already built using the DigitalOcean API. And DigitalOcean is serious about this. So it's a real feature of the platform. So they're also very serious about documentation and making sure that once you get your system set up, you can get even more out of it. DigitalOcean.com. But remember this most important part. Support the show with Last Digital. Last Digital will give you a $10 credit, and then you can try out the $5 rig two months for absolutely free. And you can then go cray-cray like Noah does and have like a jillion droplets. I don't even know what that man uses all his droplets for. But sometimes he's just walking around. They fall out of his pockets. Hey, look, there's a DigitalOcean droplet that just fell on the floor because he's got so many of them. <laughs> So go over to digitalocean.com, use the promo code Digital and just check out the interface. See how fun it is. And I know this sounds really geeky, but come on, guys. Come on. Just go in there and do like, if you deploy an Ubuntu box, do like an app get upgrade and just watch that sucker fly. It is a lot of fun. Oh, also, if you want to get savvy, check out their private networking. For $5, I would also just recommend possibly considering a next-to-go rig up in the cloud that you always have access wherever you're at, that has your key essential things, maybe like Chrome or Firefox logged into a couple of important accounts for you. So when you're on the go and you need to get into something or maybe have like LastPass and something like that. That's, there is such an opportunity now when you have this kind of horsepower for this price point and you can pick your location so it's local to you. There's a lot of ways to play with that. And I just I, I invite you to try it and use our promo code LastDigital and just see how much fun it is. So go over to DigitalOcean.com. Last Digital, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. Now, Noah, brace yourself. I know you're not a big aesthetics guy with the desktop, but producer Corps, he's serious about his aesthetics, and he wanted to pick two color picker applications. Now, uh, what I mean by that is it's an application that gives you a dropper, a little dropper thing, and wherever... You can take any spot on your desktop and take the color from that. So if there's a website that has an image you want to get the colors from or if you're trying to match your theme up, you can use this to get the exact like uh, HTML or hex code, you know, whatever you want to call it. You can get the exact color code for it. Uh, So GPIC is the uh, is the GTK version. It has a nice magnification and pointer control, automatic color name assignment, so you don't have to worry about that part of it, which is great for me. It supports Adobe Switch Exchange, so or I'm sorry, Swatch Exchange, so if you have to work with uh, people that use Adobe. But of course, it also works with Inkscape and GIMP palettes, you know, the .GPL uh, extension. That's really nice. Then, for those of you like Noah this week that are living life on the QT side of things, K color chooser is the KDE version. Now it does t- ironically, for a KDE app, it actually doesn't have as many features as the GTK version does in this particular case. However, it's got your core essentials. You're going to get your HTML hex code, you're going to be able to use your dropper anywhere on the desktop. And now, this is really nice too when you're just trying to tweak your HTML a little bit or you're just trying to tweak that theme. Both of these applications are going to are going to accomplish that. So uh it's GPIC and color chooser and we have links to both of those in the show notes we're doing a double double because i figured couldn't leave the kd guys out couldn't leave the uh, gnome guys out and this is something that if you've ever done graphics and you're trying to match colors it's a nice like tool to have in your tool belt and like noah always says the folks with the most toys get the most work done right noah
1: that's that's right the more toys you have the faster you can get work done and for me the faster I can get work done, the more money I make. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there you go. So those are two really solid applications that uh, you don't really think you need until you're, you're, you know, you're just trying to get something just right. And then they're really great. And they take up such little space uh, that I just, I left GPIC installed. I just thought that was a great one. Now, we have a spotlight this week. And the reason why we didn't make it a desktop app pick is you might have a hard time getting it installed if you're on Ubuntu 1204 or if you're not on Fedora or Arch. If you're on SUSE, I believe you can use the uh, Fedora RPM, and I believe it installs, although I have not uh, verified that myself, but I did read that online in comments. And as everybody knows, online comments are always absolutely accurate. It's called Feed Reader, and that's feed, R-E-A-D-E-R, one word, feed reader. And you guessed it, it's an RSS desktop client, but it's a desktop client like we haven't really seen before. It's a whole new quality uh, in visual presentation for the Linux desktop, and that's why I wanted to call this out. It looks like a full-fledged, completely commercially built application that could be sold online. That's its presentation. Now, it's not all done yet, but its presentation is really good. And it makes whipping through RSS feeds super fast. One of the things it does is it can pull in a full feed, but like uh, like your pockets or your insta papers or your your readabilities or whatever, it strips out a lot of the extra crap. So you get the core images, you get really nice rendered, really easily readable text, and it is super presentable. Uh, so it's an, it's an RSS desktop client, and yes, the rumors are false. RSS is still alive. It also has fast search. It supports desktop notifications if you want to be notified when certain feeds get updated. Now, I have actually used that in the past with a manual system because I pulled in my backup reports uh, from like Jungle Disk and other sources into an, into my RSS reader so that way I could pull up my RSS reader in the morning and check all of my clients backups because there are various different programs would output to RSS and then I would pull those into my RSS reader and this made it a really nice straightforward way to go through and check the backup reports without having to fill my inbox up with a bunch of crap that I never really want to go through anyways so there's a lot of different ways you can use a program like this it doesn't actually have to be for consuming news however obviously for somebody like me'm I'm, I'm following the news all the time for our different shows
1: right and th- this makes that way easier no have you ever like use Google Reader or any feed reader? I You know, I use Google Reader a little bit and right about the time I was getting into it, then it kind of went away. And so and uh, I, I haven't really replaced it yet. So this is definitely something I'm going to have to look into.
0: Yeah. Two things uh, I'll just mention about this that I like it, that really that push my buttons uh, in a good way. Uh, number one, it has a it has share it to a reader later service like Pocket or Instapaper. I like that because sometimes I start getting into an article and I'm like, oh, I do not have the time for this. But then like I've already marked it red and I don't want to lose it, track of it, and I want to finish it later. So being able to pipe that over to Instapaper is a solid winner for me. And then the other thing I like, because I have about 300 feeds that I'm checking, it automatically saves the state of the UI and where you are at in the UI when you close the application. Nice. Yes, yes. You don't, get, you don't get buried again in all of your feeds when you open that app back up. So um, the uh, way I'm pairing it, and this doesn't work as well when I'm on the road, because I haven't exposed my tiny, tiny RSS server to the to the internet, but it does work when I'm on my LAN, is it will sync with my tiny, tiny RSS server, which we have covered in a past show. And tiny, tiny RSS is a very nice web-based open source RSS program that you can now use as the back end sync for FeedReader. It also will sync with Feedly if you just want to push the easy button and want to use Feedly, which is a really well-known online RSS reader that pretty much stepped up into Google Reader's place when Google shut down Google Reader. So it syncs with my two favorite services, uh, and I love because tiny, tiny RSS, I have it on a, a, a KVM virtual machine. And now that I'm on the road, uh, I think I'm going to move it up to a DigitalOcean droplet so I can easily get to it from the road and just sync up and back and forth with what I've read. It's, it's a really great app. It looks really good. It is slightly challenging to install. They have a uh, PPA available for, um, elementary OS, Ubuntu and Linux Mint, but here's the kicker. It requires at least GTK 3.12, um, so you're going to have to either have like Freya on elementary, or I think that would be Ubuntu 1504, 1504 or higher to get it to work. Um, there is an RU, there is an AUR package available and a solo S package and a Fedora package for Fedora 21 and newer. And I'm told that the Fedora 21 package will install on OpenSUSE. I have not tried it myself yet, but you might want to check it out. You, uh, the, yeah. the, uh, URL is a little complicated. Uh, so I'm just going to have you guys uh, refer to the show notes to get that link. But, uh, It's nice, and it's it's, a—it's again—it's another one of these tools that you can add to your tool belt to get work done a little bit faster. Like the backup reports thing was, I felt a really slick way to manage that kind of data. And so, if you manage systems and they output data via RSS, or even like your even even Noah, even like you could even read your social media feeds this way or anything like that. So it's a pretty cool app, and I really like to see this level of polish coming to desktop Linux apps. And I'm going to say it, Noah, even though if you disagree. I think it's because they're inspired by the elementary OS folks. It looks like an elementary OS app.
1: Oh, no, that's, I mean, that's good. Here's the thing. I like what elementary OS is setting out to do. I just agree, disagree with some of the ways that they get there. But overall, I like the project, so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. So go to jupiterbroadcasting.com
0: slash LAS picks, last picks, if you want to see any of our previous picks. And if you want links to this one, go find the show notes for episode 385 on the front page at Jupiter Broadcasting or just. Go to Shows, Linux Action Show, and you will see it listed there. All right, Noah, let's do the news.
1: Hey, it's the news, and this episode is brought to you by...
0: Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com to get a nice discount and to support the Linux Action Show. Ting is on a mission to make mobile make sense. And what they do is they have a really straightforward pricing structure. It's a flat $6 for your cell phone for the line. You pay whatever you use on top of that. So your minutes, your messages, your megabytes, you just pay for what you use. You get an unlocked phone, you either buy it from Ting or you bring it. If you bring it, they're going to give you a service credit, which is really nice. And I want to also point you over to the Ting blog. So go to last.ting.com. They have a blog post up right now about the best ways to check to see if your phone's compatible with Ting. This is such an awesome opportunity because they have a CDMA and GSM network that you can pick from. So your chances of being compatible are pretty high. And if you bring a phone over to Ting, the amount of money you're going to save is mind-blowing. Now, they also have really great unlocked phones you can buy directly. Uh, I I would definitely recommend you also check out their Netgear Zing. I've been using that on the trip, and I actually had my first opportunity to call into the Ting customer service. And this is another really nice thing about Ting is you call them. One eight five five ting ftw and a real person answers the phone. They work with you and they're really good about getting back to you. Uh, I had, I called in, had an issue with my zing. They stayed on the phone with me for like 15 minutes to work it out. And then I lost connection. They called me back and and we got it all resolved. And honestly, there was probably three points where I was like, any other company would have bailed by now, any other company, but she just kept with me, making sure we got the problem resolved, which was super critical because I was getting ready to do code radio and I had to have connectivity. And so um, I, I walked away from that experience with a whole new appreciation of Ting's customer service. But you don't even often have to bother with it because they also have an incredible online community of forums, Reddit. They have a great Q&A section on their website, like a question and answer database you can get into. They also just re-added the Motorola Moto E second gen. You can pick up a really well-built Android phone for hundred and forty-seven dollars directly from Ting, no contract, unlocked. You pay for what you use. It's just six dollars for that line. They have a bunch of great phones. They got all the good phones, really. But I there's some that really stand out to me. Like they got the Moto X second gen for two ninety-nine. That's a you own that phone two ninety-nine. Also the sharp the Sharp Aquos Crystal, the one that has that really crazy screen. It just looks like you're just the, like the like the like the Android UI is embedded in the glass. It's just like it's on glass and it's $278. And then you own it and you only pay for your usage. Last.ting.com, LES.ting.com. You get our discount and you support our show. And I think it's really worth your time. I've been a customer now for more than two years. And I have to say, one of the things that I really, really, really have learned about Ting, because I've had a couple of months where I was like, oh, I've used a lot of minutes. Because like when we were setting up for uh, Linux Fest uh, back in April, I was on the phone all the time lining stuff up, constantly on the phone. And that month I like used like double the double triple the minutes I normally use. And I had like one expensive month where my bill was like $75. But all of the other months of the year, my bill comes in like around 35, 38, 40 bucks. So that that average that washes it out like it's it's such a savings. And you could actually go into the Ting savings calculator, put in your current usage, and it'll spit out just about how much you're going to save. For me, it's over $2,000 a month. And no, I don't, I don't know if you remember off the top of your head, but you have a, you have like
1: six or seven different Ting devices. I do. Yeah. I, I actually, I have, uh, I'm, I'm just logging into my account because it, it, you know, it takes like 30 seconds to see, uh, to get a, a real overview. Um, and I've gotten to the point now where I actually started giving lines away to family and friends because it's, it's that inexpensive. It's actually easier and cheaper Uh, And more convenient for me to do that than to try to walk people through, um, uh, you know, programming it themselves. So I'm looking here. My bill for Ting is one hundred and thirty dollars. Okay, And for that, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have eleven devices. (laughs) Uh, I have eleven devices active on Ting. And and that's and that is that one hundred and thirty seven dollars includes all of our shared use right Um, now some of those are employees some of the obviously it's me and and my wife and then uh i've given each of my parents one and uh and my aunt who moved here from india she's got one and a good friend of mine has one and and it just it it has gotten so easy for me to just say well just give me that gsm device and i actually when the sim cards were on sale there and they might still be i don't know but they were like five dollars so i ordered like Five or six of them, just to have some GSM SIM cards on hand, because yeah. I can just activate them and then mm-hmm. hand them and say, "Here you go, stick it in any unlocked phone, yeah. and it works." Yeah, and didn't your dad just pick up the uh, S6 yeah. Edge? Dude, on Ting? I am so jealous. Everyone has the S6 except me. I feel like I'm getting <laughs> left out now. But he, uh, and you know what, he actually between Ting and the S6, he is capable of doing some stuff that it doesn't seem like any other phone on ting's network is capable of really i think that there's some samsung has done something specific with that phone um to make certain things work better is the I, I guess i could say it the hotspot is 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 working on 4g lte and it's not working on my nexus 5 and when i contacted ting support apparently they're aware of that issue but that is that's it's out of, it's outside of their control well actually for what i for what i was told it sounded like it was a lollipop issue Yes, that's correct. 5.0, uh, uh, point. but here's the thing. The S6 is running Lollipop, and yeah. it doesn't have that issue. So it must be something specific to the Nexus 5 with Lollipop.
0: I've got, well, uh, so my S6 is on Ting, and uh, I uh, I think I'm running uh, Lollipop five one one right now. huh. Yeah, and uh, it is wonderful. It is, the S6, uh, I did go through just recently and sort of do like house cleaning and like uh, kill a bunch of processes from starting up, and uh, the, that got the performance working really good, and it's... It's a really nice phone. So, but they got all the they got all the good phones, you guys. You should really go check it out last.ting.com. They also have the uh, Nexus 6 for uh, 350 bucks.
1: And they have wow. the Mo- Yeah, and they have the Moto X Pure edition for 399. Have you seen the Nexus 6 in real life? Yeah, it's a monster. Dude, that phone is incredible. Like it yeah. is it is huge. Like it, it, I, I, there was a time where calling people's phones a phablet was was a polite insult. I feel like people have somehow embraced that and now companies are making phones. Hell will freeze over before you see me carrying a phone that big that I have to pick up with two hands yeah. and like and like exercise my arm to get to the other side of the screen to answer and a call. It's ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous.
0: You know, Ting also has the new Nexus 6 and the phone that I'm kind of desperate to check out. The uh, Nexus 5X is on Ting for $379. You buy that, you have no contract, you pay for what you use, you've got a killer Google phone, pure Google edition. Ting is not one of these carriers that, like, craps it up with anything. It's going to be rocking just the way Google intends it. That thing's got the Snapdragon 808 processor, two gigabytes of RAM, and you can get it directly from Ting. It's a monster. Go check it out, last.ting.com. Man, yeah. I'm starting to get that itch again, which is just, I'm not going to do it. The Edge is great, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm liking the, uh, the Nexus updates. I think they look pretty good. All right. So into the news, uh, Stephen J. Von Nicholas has been, uh, uh, he writes over at ZDNet. He's been a, uh, he's been a, you know, a, a well-known uh, writer in the open source Linux uh, arena for many, many years. And so when he made this rather bold statement, it caught my attention. He said, there will never be a year of the Linux desktop. He says, don't get me wrong, Linux, as like with Android tablets and smartphones and Chrome OS, will become the most popular end-user operating systems of all. But the desktop, he says, that's another story. My favorite laptop is the top of the line with a price tag to match 2015 Chromebook Pixel, he says. But they're not conventional desktops. Chrome OS, just like Windows 10, can work without an internet connection or the cloud, but both only really show their best advantage with respective clouds attached to them. He says they're a hybrid desktop cloud operating system. I... That seems like a little extreme with Windows 10, but I definitely agree with Chrome OS. He says, like it or not, they're also the future of desktop operating systems. You can see where I'm going, he says. I think that Linux can't possibly become
1: the desktop operating system because traditional desktops are on their way out. I think spot on. I think that uh, everything that I have seen, every major major advantage that I've seen where I've been able to swap out uh, Windows machines for Linux machines, on the desktop side anyway, has been very little to do with the competitive advantage of Linux, save the fact that it doesn't get infected with spyware and malware and stuff like that. It doesn't really, it doesn't just, it doesn't stop working if you use it too much like windows does. But aside from that, most of the advantages that come uh, from switching to the Linux desktop have only been there because the solution exists inside of a web browser. Um, And if, and if that is the way that we're going to do our computing in the next couple of years, then I think he's a hundred percent on. I think that uh, I, I you know, I, I mm. hate to say it. I hate mm. to say it because as a Linux user and as as a as a as a ham radio operator, I like to have local stuff. And I'm sure living in a camper, that's probably been twice as true for you.
0: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take the other side okay. of, of this argument here uh, because I, I I disagree. But I'm I, I think Stephen here he's gonna basically uh, back you up. So I'll, I'll finish reading the rest of the couple of interesting bits from him. He says, uh, look at Chromebooks. Most of them get by with just a, with like a 32-gigabyte SSD because Google gives you a minimum of 100 gigs on Google Drive. Uh, Microsoft, if you get Office 365, gives you unlimited OneDrive storage. He says, looking ahead, I see 90% of most users working with hybrid desktop cloud operating systems. Most people are already well on their way of not using a conventional desktop or laptop at all. This is a trend. Even as tablet sales slow, he thinks it's going to continue. He says there are going to be a few people who still use conventional desktops, but those people are ones who want real control over their hardware and software, and they're the ones who want real security. In short, they're the same people who are already using Linux. He says, by 2020, in a very limited way, Linux may be the desktop operating system, it's just that there won't be many traditional desktops left in use. Wow. So here's, here's my thing about this. This has been a narrative that has been pretty much iterated in one way or another since Steve Jobs declared the the PC dead and said that PCs are trucks and tablets are cars. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I feel like the the press and and commentators and whoever you want to call them have been looking to validate that prediction. And you know what, Noah, as I drive around in 2015, I still see a shit ton of trucks on the mm-hmm. road. And the thing is, there's a lot of people that have there's a lot of people a lot of people that need something that can do a little heavy Mm -hmm. lifting. And the other thing about that is, is all of the people that are making applications for these Chromebooks and tablets, they are building all of these applications on desktops and laptops. They're not building them on tablets. They're not building them on Chromebooks, at least not at any scale that matters. It's all happening on these desktops. They're supposedly going away. But yet, The systems that people are replacing them with require these desktops to have their software created in the first place. Look at iOS, classic example of this, right? And the thing is, video editing, photo editing, gaming, none of that has shown any signs of needing less resources. In fact, all of these work cases, and for many more, server tasks, all these things require more horsepower than we have today. If I could buy a computer... uh, a 16 core processor and 72 gigabytes of RAM for a reasonable price. You're damn well bet I would buy that mm-hmm. machine. There's no way I want less resources. I don't want less power, and I don't think we're a minority. I actually think it seems really reasonable to me that it's going to be sort of you have a dedicated PC, it does stuff. But the the days of you go to the computer desk and you sit at a desk in a room and you work on the computer that is what's going away. That's what's going to change. I feel
1: like to if you if you just uh, if you back up and and look at what you said from a different perspective, I feel like I with with the, a couple of tweaks I could use the same information to make an opposite argument. And I'll give you an example. Okay, you're right that that photo editing, video editing, those kind of things haven't become any more any less resource intensive or software development. Right, but what happens when the internet because the internet connections are getting drastically better everywhere. Um, the, the mere fact that I can now get a portable hotspot and get 20 freaking megabytes down blows my mind as compared to that would, that I would have killed for that at my house just a couple of years ago. And now, now, now I can get that on my cell phone <clears throat> as that continues to, as that technology continues to advance, how much longer is it going to be before uh, companies like Adobe and companies like Google just say, you know what, we are, go- you're going to sign in to a, a web portal and you'll do all your editing inside of a web browser. Yeah. How long before something like that takes off? And if that's the case, because if you think about it, now they're not making a PC version and a Mac version and an iPad version and an Android. They're making the version of the software and you use whatever device you want with whatever web browser you want. My sense of that is we're going to hit a wall. We're going to hit a wall. And the reason we're going to hit a wall
0: is because all of that depends on web standards. And the web standards bodies, true. they take forever to get their crap together. Then the different browsers implement it differently. It's there's so much technical baggage to create a web application that the desktop applications and the native applications on mobile devices are always going to be, in my opinion, a year ahead of web apps. And, and, and in that, in so many situations, the cost of that leg is too damn high, in my opinion.
1: Okay. I, 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 I can see, no, I, <clears throat> I can see that. I just wonder, is the cost of leg too high right now? <clears throat> what happens when it becomes not 20 down? What, what, what happens in the next 10 years when we get 200 down? on your cell phone and a hundred up on your cell phone. Is that still going to be the case? And what hmm. happens when, uh, what happens when the next generation of web browsers come out or the next generation HTML six or whatever it is, that the, the next standard is comes out that lets us start talking directly to the hardware. Um, and and we can tap into some of that and do just enough local processing that we can get something done. I just, I, I just wonder if in our search to find a universal operating system, if we're not eventually going to come, uh, you know, you know, to, to a, to a trivia point, in a road of the web browser being that universal operating system,
0: we'll see. I would be, you know, it, it, I think that really does depend on ubiquitous high-speed bandwidth and internet connectivity, which I do not think is going to be here in five years. I don't think that's in twenty twenty. I that's way out there, in my opinion. And I am sitting here in a, in a trailer, and I am struggling to have connectivity while we do this show. And I, you know, it, yeah, it's yeah, just it's one of these things where. And that's just yeah. voice. That's just yeah. voice. It's one of these things where it sounds good in theory, but then in practice, there's so many situations where if you go outside a few areas in the U.S., the Internet speeds just are really tr- just tremendously bad, just tremendously bad. Uh, and and, and, and uh, yeah, I don't know. No, to me, it feels like we're still struggling to deliver Netflix properly.
1: Let, let me tell you something. I hope that you're right. <laughs> I really do because uh, for for a couple of reasons one is I hate web centered software I really 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 hate it so much so that I can I can honestly say with the exception of communication based software things like telegram things like uh, Skype and Hangouts and email and stuff like that with the, with those exceptions any piece of software that I that I really really rely on that I really really need is runs completely locally. It is, it, it yeah. is not a service. It is a, it is a piece of software that I install in my machine. And if the whole world around me burned down, gosh, darn it. I can still cook because gourmet is still installed with its XML files on the desktop in my kitchen, you know? And, and, and I, f- I feel pretty yeah. strongly about yeah. that. So I hope to yeah. God you're wrong. I just see, the, I just see it succeeding that way.
0: So I, I feel like this thread, this, this, this the overall thread is going to come up again in our uh, leap review. Uh, in a little bit here in the show, because I've got some additional thoughts on that. But while we're talking about bandwidth and we're talking about getting knocked offline, let's jump over to this story about the security firm that has discovered a Linux botnet that on demand can hit its targets with 150 gigabits of denial service. I mean, 150 gigabits is more than most corporations can take. So guess who noticed this? People that that really watch bandwidth, Akamai. Akamai announced on Tuesday, they said that its security intelligence response team, what a hell of a name, has discovered a massive Linux-based botnet that is reportedly capable of downing websites under a torrent of DDoS traffic that exceeds, exceeds 150 gigabits. The botnet spreads via a Trojan variant dubbed XORDOS, X-O-R-D-D-O-S. The malware infects Linux systems via embedded devices like network routers, and it brute forces the SSH access. So it's dependent on a really crappy SSH password or the fact that you're not using keys. Once the malware has secure shell credentials, it secretly downloads and installs the necessary botnet software and then connects a newly infected computer to the rest of the hive. Security reachers have been aware of this since last year, but recently noticed the effects of the botnet itself. According to Akamai, the network strikes around 20 times a day, though 90% of its targets are various businesses in Asia, typically gambling and education sites. It's kind of an interesting mix. And what's troubling <laughs> isn't the scope of attacks, but rather the massive, massive size, because it's, it's basically capable of knocking pretty much any company offline. Uh, so it, it, they, uh, they throw in a little uh, tit for tat here at the uh, end of the uh, Engadget article just to kind of wrap it all up in a bow. A decade ago, Linux was seen as the most secure alternative to Windows environments. You know, people's bad SSH passwords and not using yes. keys is not Linux's fault.
1: You took the words right out of my freaking mouth. (laughs) Uh, Not so much with passwords, but I was definitely going to say something about key based authentication. Yeah, Akamai
0: told uh, PC World as the number of Linux environments has grown, the potential opportunity and rewards for criminals also has grown. No, here's another way to put that. As more people deploy Linux, more people that don't
1: know what the hell they're doing set things up. That's right. Yeah. That's right. My box wasn't compromised. Uh, You know, and so, and, you know, the other thing that comes to mind uh, is, and I'm I'm going to take a line from from my predecessor Matt Hartley. When if if a computer can execute code, it's vulnerable to be maliciously used. I, there's yep. no way. There's no two ways about that. Um, and so this this if if anyone actually believed that Linux was actually immune from malware, uh, or, or penetration, that person is foolish, you know? And mm-hmm, so that, mm-hmm. that, nobody actually believes that at least not anyone that, that with any intelligence actually believes that what we do believe is that Linux has in place certain measures when used correctly will, will greatly hinder somebody's ability to access a machine certainly would hinder somebody's ability to, uh, to propagate a botnet over SSH when used correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Leaving the leaving the SSH password set probably to whatever the default was on the machine or a mass deployment with the, the same password would not be using it correctly. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, you know, this. So what the hell can you do about it? I love this. So this is our next story. Semantics writing about an Internet of Things vigilante. That's what they're calling it. And get this, Noah. It is malware that spreads from Linux router to Linux router and fixes the flaws, Check this out. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called Wifwatch. It's written in Perl, uh, and it targets several different architectures, and it ships with its own static Perl interpreter for each of them. Once a the device is infected, it connects to a peer-to-peer network that's then used to distribute threat updates. So it gets new updates about new vulnerabilities. Now, the code itself doesn't have any payload or any malicious activities. It's not doing like DDoS attacks or anything like that. Um, it's just simply doing things like shutting down Telnet. Or fixing a
1: small... It's like the Robin Hood of Linux. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs)
0: That's really Uh, cool. uh, So, Symantec's been watching this code for for a number of months, and they say in this entire time, they've never once seen any malicious activity. Uh, It not only kills the Telnet daemon, but it also leaves in its place a message telling the owners to change their passwords and update their firmware. So, like, if you try to log into your box... It'll return an error that says, Telnet has been closed to avoid further infections of this device. Please disable Telnet and change Telnet passwords and or update the the firmware. And then it closes the connection. The author left a comment in the source code. Are you ready for this? He left a comment in the source code that references an email signature used by Richard Stallman. Nice. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. Yes. In In RMS's signature, he says... To any NSA and FBI agents reading this, please consider whether defending the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign or domestic, requires you to follow Snowden's example. And that's that's in the source code for this malware. And the other thing that the author did is he didn't uh, he didn't try to uh, like obfuscate it. Jeez, I can't talk. Obfuscate it. Uh, he, he used some compression to make sure it fits on these devices and minified the code, but it's all readable. You can just open it up and read it. Uh, and it also, the code contains debug messages to make it easier for the researchers to analyze what this thing's doing. So he wasn't really particularly worried about it being picked apart. Um, now, there is something that Semantic points out that is a little iffy, despite all the positive stuff I just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the device, or I'm sorry, the, the the malware, does essentially have a general purpose backdoor that can be accessed by the author if he wanted to carry out any kind of action. However. It requires a cryptographic signature to be veripi- verified upon use of the back door. So the creator has cryptographically locked the back door to him. So it should reduce the risk of like the peer-to-peer network being taken over and then uh-huh. sending it bad commands. Yeah, so you have to have this guy's key. Um, so they believe, semantic believes, that uh, with Watch or with Hatch or whatever you want to say it, the infections are happening over Telnet connections to devices using, again, weak credentials. And they say after watching it for a number of months... They estimate that it's somewhere in the order of tens of thousands of devices that are infected with this thing right now. And the fix is super simple. To mitigate the attack, you just restart the device. Of course, if you don't fix the password, you could get reinfected again. But the uh, the fix is really simple, really straightforward. And so that from the very beginning, this guy set this thing up to make it very easy for semantic or any other security researchers to determine what's going on. He wrote it in basically right out there in the open with comments. He left debugging hooks in there and he made it so he could remotely update it with cryptographic signatures. I mean, the whole thing <laughs> is just
1: brilliant. It's just brilliant. So I just love it. And it's the kind of creativity that you only get from somebody in the Linux world. Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, come on. Nobody in Windows is doing stuff like this. Now,
0: we do have a little bad news. Speaking of hacks. Our friends over at Patreon suffered a breach. And so if you are a patron, uh, you should probably change your password. That's likely for those of you who are patrons, the worst of it. They were using bcrypt, which if you watch TechSnap, is pretty good stuff. You probably know already. And uh, they don't store any credit card or payment credentials. So that's not going to be a part of the leak. Their database did get dumped online, though, um, and the source code to their website. Now, for content creators like myself, it's a little bit of a worse story because... um, you know, my like like socials in there and stuff like that, probably or our EIN for the business or whatever it would be. So there's just mm. for content creators, there's there's a bit a bit of a bigger deal here. Uh, but for end users, it doesn't appear to be awful. But I I always want to encourage you guys to use different passwords at different sites. Um, and I think a lot of you in our community probably do that. And we have our we do have a Patreon page that supports the entire Jupiter Broadcasting Network over at Patreon.com/slash today. And we are trying to raise more funds so that down the road, and as, as we get closer to this, I will outline these more clearly, but down the road, I want to get to a point where we could take some of this Patreon funding and contribute it back upstream to some of the projects that we use at Jupyter Broadcasting to produce our shows. So, for example, this week, we're using the hell out of OBS, we're using the hell out of FFmpeg, and uh, Darkcast, and a bunch of other essential open... well, the entire Linux desktop as well, obviously... But th- don't forget the new utilities. Yes, of course, <laughs> of course. Yeah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but you know, there are certain elements to all of these programs that could use some work and they just need the support. And so this is something that I hope, I hope doesn't hurt the Patreon platform because there's a lot of content creators out there like JB and you know, like, uh, I, I, like I'm a Patreon for, uh, for Tom Merritt. And, um, uh, I think I also, I back wimpy on there for, uh, for uh, the Ubuntu Mate project, and uh, I think I might be on the Elementary OS guys too, and I'm on like Eric S. Raymond's Patreon.
1: So you know, uh, they didn't seem, you know, they they who are in the know did seem to think that all of their uh, security measures took over and protected uh, any real sensitive data. You're just saying go one step above that and and, yeah. and change, change the password. password. Change so I password. don't think there's any real threat. It's just you want to be absolutely sure, and so you mm-hmm. go above and beyond.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And I also will mention too, if you've been hearing us talk about the road trip for our patrons, we've been releasing some exclusives over there. So if you sign up at some point in the future, you'll get access to the entire back catalog of stuff there as well. And ours is at Patreon.com/slash/Today. Including me going crazy with a drill, I think, is in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that is. That is. That's in the Rover log too. That's. That's in the Rover log that I publish publicly too, which you can find at JupiterBroadcasting.com/slash/Rover. All right, Noah. That's all the news for this week. Folks at OpenSUSE have a seriously ambitious goal. How about a nice up-to-date user land, but the stuff down below that you depend on coming from some of the best stuff in the industry, SuSE Enterprise Server. Imagine that, a nice stable core with all your nice applications up-to-date. It's a real nice walk for those of you who kind of want something rolling, but kind of want something stable. And OpenSUSE Elite 42.1 Beta came out this week, and they sent out on Twitter, gave it, give it a try, and we're taking them up on that offer, and we're going to give you our impressions. But first... Let me tell you about System76. They build computers designed to run Linux. They make sure every component in that thing is going to work for you. And they work on that like nobody's business. I have seen them spend a year certifying a machine just to then not ship it because it just didn't live up to it. They are particular about what they put out the door. And that means at the end of the day, you're not going to have a hard time loading Linux using Linux or troubleshooting. You're not going to have to fight with the hardware. You get to focus on the software and that's, what's ideal. If you want to give somebody a really great out of the box, Linux experience system 76.com, they have desktops, they got laptops, they have servers. It is great. And they have a whole range of products. They have new shipping destinations as well. Check them out. System 76.com. Just tell them the Linux action show sent you, go get yourself something nice. You get to play with your computer and stop fighting with the hardware. So this is something pretty unique. Uh, OpenSUSE Leap is, well, in some ways, probably the future of the OpenSUSE project, I would imagine. Uh, they say, direct quote here maintaining a distribution is a lot of work. By basing OpenSUSE on SUSE Linux Enterprise, the core of OpenSUSE will be maintained by SUSE engineers. That means it will get fixes and security updates from SUSE Linux Enterprise. Now, remember that when we come back to the lifecycle support time. Uh, they say the OpenSUSE project can then replace and add bits and pieces of software that The contributors want and are willing to maintain. And we're already seeing it, I believe, an example of that. I don't think they're using the Linux kernel from SuSE Enterprise Linux. They're using uh, the Linux kernel 4.1 LTS in Leap as as opposed to the uh, Celeste kernel. OpenSUSE and Leap will complement Tumbleweed better. When there was one OpenSUSE, people were torn between those who wanted newer software and those who wanted a stable system. Tumbleweed caters to those who want newer software which allows regular releases to do even regular releases to do even better job providing a highly stable systems. Users wanting long-term stable Linux can expect Leap to use the most advanced long-term supported branch of the Linux kernel 4.1 as of this one, which provides significant improvements to ARM architecture. And because it's based on SUSE Enterprise Linux, I think that's essentially going to work out to mean the distro is going to get updates for as long as SUSE Enterprise Linux does. Now, I think some of this is in flex. Uh, R. SUSE is the chairman over at SUSE, and he's commented before on our subreddit, and uh, he was commenting on the OpenSUSE subreddit when somebody was asking about the long-term support status of Leap. And he says, Leap42.x will be supported at least until Leap43 is out. And that will happen around when SLES our SUSE Linux Enterprise 13 is out which is a few years away exact deadlines and schedules are somewhat unknown because no one knows when SUSE Linux Enterprise 13 will be out yet and also dependent on that we might want to focus on fine tuning the life cycle of the final 42 leap version to give it a comfortable overlap with the 43 version uh, but we will wait until they get closer to know for sure so essentially what he's saying is some of the some of the long term support stuff is kind of in flux but it's essentially tied to Seuss Linux Enterprise. And so you're going to get updates as long as the version of Leap that matches that version of Seuss Linux Enterprise gets updates. Does that make sense to you, Noah?
1: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know if we just kind of dive in here with our experiences. Yeah. I know mean, what do you think? What was, what was your impressions? I mean, keep it in mind. It's a beta. We're keeping yeah, it in mind. Oh, so, that, so that's disclaimer number one. It's a beta. Disclaimer number two. And this is really, really important. Say it with me, everyone. Noah does not use KDE very often. <laughs> Noah doesn't use KDE very often. So <clears throat> a large part of my experience with openSUSE was the advantages and disadvantages of the KDE desktop. I am not by any means saying that uh if I tried it under Arch or under Fedora or under Ubuntu that the same exact thing under KDE wouldn't happen. I acknowledge that. I know that. I understand the difference between a desktop environment and a distro, but being as I have rarely used KDE That led me to uh, that led me to basically experience OpenSUSE and KDE as one. The first thing I noticed right off the bat was I felt like for the first time in probably 10 years, I was using a different operating system. I didn't feel like I was on a Linux desktop. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. It started with the splash screen. The splash screen was decorated. It was like green all the way up to the corners as if I had like a full video driver running, even though it was just
0: talking about like at the you're you're talking about like the grub boot screen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was gorgeous. I mean, just gorgeous. And so that caught me off guard. And then I got to the actual sign in screen. And instead of just having like a blocky enter your username here and the password underneath and you know, one turning into the other, my name showed up and then I had like a password field. And it was like, I was like, I was experiencing something before I'd even logged into the machine. Yeah. I, that so, was really cool. What the way I, so I did the gnome desktop. So that way, okay, I, I just did
0: that. So that way I would jump in with something pretty familiar. And then I would kind of just get into the nuances of Seuss itself. And Mm -hmm. uh, what what I felt, I think the way I interpreted what you're saying is it feels like a distribution built with serious intention behind it. Yes. Like they. they, Oh, yes.
1: It's it's, there's a craftsmanship to Seuss. Yes, there is. Yeah. Um, Now that I I had I I took a slightly unexpected detour Uh, when I logged into the computer. The first I took pictures on my phone. So those will be in the show notes. Um, I had a blue background, no actual wallpaper. None of the icons populated on the on the, uh, on the the menu system. So, like, you mm. know, Firefox had the same icon as Thunderbird. Like, nothing had any icons in it. I couldn't find out how to change the wallpaper. Like, nothing seemed to be working. And then I found out that, for whatever reason, the desktop default uh, uh, window manager was set to something other than KDE Plasma. And I don't know why that got changed, because during the install process, all I did was click next. I really didn't specify anything. I mean, I put my name and stuff in there. Um, and once I logged out and just changed that dropdown, everything worked fine. And then I was welcomed to an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. desktop. There are a couple
0: of rough edges I ran into like that. So um, one of the things that uh, I'll circle back on here in a second, but I installed from a USB thumb drive and, uh, you know, I, I I DD rescued the ISO to the thumb drive and then I booted off the thumb drive and installed it. If you do that, Yast registers that Drive as a media source, as a repository available to the software manager. Now, the downside to that is that means every time you open up online update or every time you open up software manager, like a good package manager, it goes out and refreshes all the sources. However, right. it means it's trying to refresh a USB thumb drive. Now, I don't know about you guys, but after I install my distro from a thumb drive, I tend not to just leave it plugged in indefinitely. I tend to remove it and set it aside. Right. So almost immediately, I'm smacked in the face with a really kind of cryptic error message that doesn't even really tell me what it means. It's just because I've used SUSE before, I know what that is. And yes, it's a very simple fix. You go into these sources and you just uncheck it and turn off auto-refresh, and it's totally fine. But it's Mm -hmm. one of those little things that kind of hits you in the face, and you're like, hmm, that's that's strange. Um, Other things that I, I thought were kind of a little odd was... The online update tool apparently shipped without any sources configured, and I don't know why that is, because I just went into the sources manager and checked the box to enable online update sources, but by default, the updater didn't actually look at any sources to look for updates, and that might just be because it's beta, so I just kind of, you know, that's just a note of mine. I'll tell you Mm -hmm. something that's... I'll tell you, though, something, Noah. The thing thing I really appreciated about installing SUSE while I'm on the road is... Mm -hmm. The software manager really makes it easy to just, oh, I need a package and I don't have an internet connectivity, but if I do go grab that thumb drive, I can pull it off that thumb drive. And yeah. if you if you turn off auto refresh, it doesn't check the thumb drive, but you can still leave the thumb drive as a software source. So you can still install software from the thumb drive. And that is so, so I'm sitting here setting up my, my machine and I decide, ah, you know what? I'm not a huge fan of their default theme. I wonder mm-hmm. what they have in the repos. And in there, they have Numix and they have, you know, they have all of the great GTK themes in the SUSE repo. And I didn't have to have internet connection to get them. I just put the thumb drive back in and
1: got all my themes. And that was really nice. You know, in a lot of ways, it sounds like you actually were able to review a part of uh, a part of OpenSUSE or any distro for that matter that really most other people wouldn't even notice just because of your living arrangement at the moment.
0: Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. So, of course, I also have my XPS 13 that has Arch on it, right? The total opposite of this, where to do any software changes at all, I have to have an internet connection. So, you know, on the pre-show, you and I were talking about this. Well, what happens if you're working and you're in the middle of a project and your machine blows up? I can't just go get another hard drive and reload Arch. Right. You know, I I can't because I don't have a connection. But with SUSE, I've got the media... And I'm able to install from the media or when I do have an internet connection, it just pulls from the internet just seamlessly, seamlessly. I'm getting either the latest packages from the internet and when I don't have a connection, thumb drive. And for me, somebody who's constantly thinking like, geez, if I'm going to be staying in more and more re- remote locations for the rest of the year um, or whatever it is indefinitely for now. Uh, how, how do I plan for this? And I honestly have been questioning my use of Arch because of this, you yeah. know, because it doesn't make a lot of sense when you don't have connectivity to have a distribution that requires you're online. And, right. and so SUSE gave me this sort of sweet spot because, uh, in theory with leap, when I do have connectivity, I can get a refresh user land, but I don't have to worry about the underpinnings of my operating system being changed out from under me because if they do change too much and something happens, I might not have a connection to go look up on the wiki, how to fix it.
1: Yeah, I, I I uh so I I had kind of the opposite experience in that all of my packages got pulled right off the internet. Um, yeah, and that and works it fine. Happened in the pretty connection. seamlessly. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So a couple other things I noticed during the installation. You guys out there probably already know this, but the folks over at SuSE are big on ButterFS, and so um they use ButterFS for the root, and then they also create a bunch of subvolumes that I think are really smart. They just do this by this is just like their 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 recommended configuration is they make a ButterFS subvolume for libvirt, which is obviously where your virtual machines would be, mailman, if you end up making a mail server out of this thing, uh, the Postgres uh, SQL directory, uh, the MariaDB directory, it creates independent sub-volumes, which means it's much easier to manage these sub-volumes if that particular data set grows kind of obnoxiously. But the other thing that they do, which shows that they're, they're, they're not just, like, being clever, but they're really thinking through, like, how to make sure this machine performs well for the end user, is on those particular sub-volumes I just mentioned... They turn off ButterFS's copy on write, which does quite a few things. You know, it saves you a ton of metadata storage, but it also makes performance to ButterFS really fast. And so it's the perfect sort of balance where they've used ButterFS, but they're implementing it really intelligently. And then this jumped out at me. At least on my installation, it recommended for my home directory to use XFS. So they're interchanging ButterFS and XFS. And I thought about this for a second. I thought, why would they... Why would they make my home directory XFS and not ButterFS, and it dawned on me. If there's, if there's one partition I, I fill up on my Linux box
1: accidentally from time to time, it's my home directory partition. And let me guess, 90% of the information is in the downloads folder.
0: Yeah, yeah, or Dropbox or <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. And so would you fill up a ButterFS partition the, the, the performance drops to the floor. Uh, I've compared it in the past to going from an SSD to a 5,400 RPM spinning disk is what it feels like. I mean, it's a massive drop in performance when you fill up ButterFS. And in my opinion, this is just my, my, my opinion from running about you know 15 systems with ButterFS for the last two years. Uh, it, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, but in my opinion, this, this is a big, big problem for ButterFS on the home directory. And by them using XFS they've solved that problem where you can run the risk of filling up your home directory and not totally killing your performance. And XFS is still a great file system. So really intelligent stuff they're doing. The one thing I'll say is if you're loading it on a a, a computer that already has a distro installed, in my case, I I put it on this Dell here that had Ubuntu 1204 on it. And SUSE is going to try to accommodate that installation and it's going to try to install itself around Ubuntu. And what two things happened from that is... It wasn't really clear in the partition layout what it was going to do because it was giving me so much information. I wasn't actually quite clear if it was repartitioning the disk completely or not. And the other thing is, the bootloader failed to install. So when the laptop rebooted, it actually booted back into Ubuntu. After the after the installation of SUSE was done, the installer reboots and I get greeted with Ubuntu's doodunk at the uh, at the at the login screen and so I had to go back in And uh, you check a box when you're at the partitioning screen. You just customize it, and it's one checkbox to say use entire disk, and then the then the partitioner just retakes the entire drive and the bootloader installed just fine. Now, uh, Noah, what were your impressions
1: of installation and software management? So once I got past my my idiotic logging in in the incorrect way, uh, I was kind of blown away once I first saw the desktop because everything was just kind of pretty. Um, I want to go off with the things that didn't work right off the bat. Uh, suspend didn't work the first time after I updated the system, uh, suspend started working. So, and again, we have to remember that this is a beta, so it's not really fair to critique some of the minor things. in it. And just to point out, I didn't have any issues with suspend. Yeah. And so it just, it kind of just, I guess it's one of those things that it just set me off the wrong way because, uh, I previously had Ubuntu on this exact machine. And before that I had Fedora on it and I didn't have a problem. And then I put open and then I had a problem with suspense. I was like, eh, but like I said, after the update, totally fine. Haven't had a problem since. Um, the sound in KDE is just God awful. Like yeah, it's trying to, con- trying to configure the sound in KDE is just horrible. Now I'm sure there's somebody out there that is very, very talented, uh, with the KDE desktop and, and maybe open and, and knows exactly how to do all the stuff that I tried to do, but I just couldn't get it to work. And it just seems simpler in Gnome or unity or basically every other desktop out there. Um, but, uh, The uh, the other thing, and this was a problem right when we're going on air, the windows don't scale properly. And so if you look at um, like if I open um, like the if I open the display settings, uh, because the resolution is slightly lower and by slightly lower, I mean, 1366 by 768. It uh, will probably show up on the stream. okay because it's a 1920p capture. But my screen cuts off right here. So I can't see anything below Mm. About the last third of the window, which means I can't see the apply or the OK button. Um, and so it makes it really difficult to make changes to the system. Now, I understand that 1366 by 768 is a really crappy resolution. But my gosh, go into Best Buy and 10 out of the 12 laptops there are going to have that particular resolution. So yeah. I think it would be important to to make the wind to draw the window so that they work, at, even if it is a lower resolution than most of us would. mind. this this laptop here, which I'm running Gnome on.
0: Same uh-huh. resolution, not yep. nearly those kinds of problems. I believe under KDE, it's been a while since I've done this, but if you hold down the alt button and you click on the title bar and you drag up, you can actually drag it off your screen and get the, the okay and cancel oh. buttons to come up. Yeah, it's a little hokey. Okay. All right. Well, you know, that works. That works. But yeah, so, okay. So once you got over that, did you, have, did you run into issues installing software? What are your impressions about that kind of thing? Yep.
1: So uh, first I went to launch software and alt F1 is what brings up the menu key, the, the 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 start button doesn't do that, which I thought was a little strange, but again, that's just a it's a training thing. Not nothing necessarily wrong with it. The reason that I can't stick with OpenSUSE, or at least the reason I believe that I can't stick with OpenSUSE full time on my laptop indefinitely, is because I don't have access to the same amount of software that I feel like I have access to with Ubuntu or Arch. Even with the build service. Well, I mean, because yeah, you look, I have to look into, well, on the pre-show you checked, so Telegram wasn't there. That's probably the one that's jumping out at you, right? Right. Yeah. So Telegram was a big one because it was really, I mean, it wasn't that Telegram is able to, uh, to kind of work itself around because I can use the web client, which that's, it's good enough. Um, but it, it, it was really frustrating not having access to the, to all the software that I would usually have. Um, and I think that if you go to, if you're going to pick open as a daily driver, I think you have to acknowledge that that probably ninety percent of the open source stuff is going to be there, and oh, yeah. a lot of the proprietary stuff is going to be there because you can just run the RPMs that were made for Fedora. But I think you have to admit that there is going—you're going to have a couple pieces of software you're just not going to get your hands on. And I don't think that would be the case if you are running Ubuntu or Arch.
0: This has been an ongoing kind of complaint of mine with SUSE, and I keep coming mm-hmm. down on it like this. Noah is if they can, if they can just nail a if they can, if they can. If they can nail the sweet spot between up-to-date user space, stable core, you might see that picking up traction with more and more users. If that happens, it's... Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of of infrastructure around SUSE to make moving applications over easier. And some, some projects are just using the OpenSUSE build service out of the gate, and they're making packages not just for SUSE, but a lot of distros. And if that trend continues, that might get better. But man, for the last two years, I've been saying basically what you're saying right now. So uh,
1: that actually uh, so if if I if I accept those realities and I accept that I'll just live with a couple uh, a little less after or if what you're saying ends up uh, coming to fruition, then I guess you're right. It is probably a social limitation. And, and eventually we would have software if they if the user populace came over. But that was really where the disadvantages ended. And if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, especially for beta software, that's really not that many things to complain about. You know, that's that's actually pretty simple. After that, everything was all positive. So the first thing I really liked about the desktop, when I go to move a window, if I uh, and of course, uh, of course, Quasal doesn't. Oh, yeah, it does. So when I go to drag to move Quasal, the window turns transparent. And so if there's something else under it, I can see it. And where that was incredibly useful was working on things like show notes where I'm repositioning uh one browser window or one you know text editor over something else and i can see exactly what text i'm going to be able to read and what's going to get cut off super super useful it's a minor thing but it it really stood out
0: to me it, it's a, actually though I, oh sorry not to interrupt but uh it's a good example of what i was saying earlier is there's intention behind this desktop like, Yes. you get a kde desktop that is a pretty damn good kde experience out of the mm-hmm. box and now i to be fair i have not compared it to the latest kubuntu but In my impression, and what I'm seeing on the GNOME side of things, is there is an extra couple of steps taken. A couple Mm -hmm. of extra settings are changed in KDE out of the gate. Uh, A couple extra things are added to GNOME out of the box that
1: just take it a little bit further, and uh, I think that's what you're picking up on. The uh, Inside of the application, the other thing I notice is when I go to minimize one, I can minimize an application to the bar at the bottom, or there's an icon over at the task area, and if I click on that... It removes the application entirely from the bar and puts it inside of my, my, it's still running and I still get notifications, but it has minimized itself over to the task area. Man, was that helpful when Mm. I could throw the IRC down when I was in the chat and I didn't have my, my, my bottom work bar, what I was actively working on wasn't getting cluttered with applications that I wanted to be running in the background, like Thunderbird and Quassel, and, and, um. If if I could get Telegram installed, Telegram, um, but the uh, but at the same time, I can still get notifications for all those programs. And I thought that was super cool. The other thing is the disk manager, the partition manager allows for a really easy way to do encryption. And so if I open up the partitioner over uh, over on the left hand side, there is a menu that says. First, I have to get a warning that says, are you sure I want to do this? But then on the left hand side, not only do I see a really, really neat layout of uh, of how my hard drive is, you know, I can click on my hard drive and then I see my two disks. And if I click on one of the disks, it shows me the partitions. But under uh, underneath there a little ways is a is a tab called crypt files. And um. I played with it a little bit, and I wasn't able to get it working quite 100% wa- how I thought it should work, but I'm writing that up, too. It's a beta, and so they'll probably have it fixed when the when the final release comes out. But it would appear that I'm going to have the ability to click on a single button and create an encrypted volume to store stuff on. Oh, yeah. Which... If you remember what uh, the way I've been doing it in Gnome or in Ubuntu is I'm going down to the com- uh, to the terminal and generating a, a, a file that I then go back and mounted. It. It's just it's a big cockamamie setup. This is cool. Yeah. And not only that, you could walk somebody over the phone on how to do that. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or they could probably figure it out. I I will make a challenge. When when the final release of this comes out, I am going to take a a computer and I will walk around to some uh, some less technically literate people and set it down in front of them and open the manager and say, here, secure a file. And I'll bet you just by the way that the buttons are labeled um, and walking through that that nice little wizard where they say next, 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 you could uh, somebody could encrypt their own files and having absolutely practically no idea what they're doing and still be able to get it done. I want to I want to show you something else. Uh, if you go okay. into, open up Yast,
0: um, which is yet another system tool, right? This is their big configuration console. And it, it's, uh, go in there, Noah, and uh, look down to, uh, let's see, I forget, maybe it's like, um, it's in virtualization maybe, or where? No, miscellaneous. It's in miscellaneous. Go down to miscellaneous okay. in there and look at the Snapper utility. And I want okay. you to just open up Snapper. And uh, on my system, Snapper is got a list of every time I... Did a software installation, and what it has done is Yast oh. has it has executed a butterfs system file system snapshot before and after a package transaction. Okay, nice. Yeah, so right here in this UI, you could roll back, modify. You know, this is right out of the gate. You didn't even realize it, but Suse has set up a file system snapshot utility for you before you make major config changes to your mm-hmm. box. So this isn't new to Leap. But this is an example of what makes this a compelling distribution is you get some of these tools that honestly, I really, really like, but I'm just too much of a new software guy. I just got to have the new stuff to actually stick yeah. with a distro that has these tools. And now you now we're looking at a distro where, okay, I can have a few more updated packages and I can have file system snapshots. Now, why is this a big deal for Chris? It's There's a lot of reasons you might want a file system snapshot, but for me... I seem to have some sort. I get my jollies on doing big system package updates right before I go on
1: air. I don't know why I do right, it, but that's right. just what I do it. Right? Or, or, or even sometimes while you're on air, yes, like yes. you're 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 going on air, and it's like, why not update my system yeah. and see what breaks? So I love this aspect of it,
0: and then the other thing uh, that is you really you 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 just you gotta appreciate is it's like three clicks away, and you've got a full KVM virtualization system. Okay, and so if you're mm-hmm. using this as a as an engineer's workstation or as a place to get work done. I cannot think of another distro once they finish this work, that's going to straddle this sweet spot better with these utilities, with this updated stuff, with the intention behind it. I I I just, I'm I'm grasping at straws because, where Fedora is going with the Fedora workstation intrigues the hell out of me, but it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't solve that fundamental problem of a short lifetime support of the Fedora distro. Right. Right. And I don't stick with Ubuntu LTSs. Just like we were saying in the pick segment, you know, if, if you want a feed reader, well, you have to be on Ubuntu 1504 or later. If you're on 1204 or 1404, sorry, 1410, you're out of luck. You can't use it. And for me, that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. This, So these, these, like Fedora and Ubuntu, they're, they're just, they're not quite hitting the right notes for me. And so I have gone all the way to the other extreme everything's rolling, everything gets updated all the time. Right. But that's not always practical either, and it's a debate we have back and forth all the time. And what I'm loving about this is it's really got all the tools I really would like to use because I want to be lazy. I want to have something that maybe I could just sort of standardize on. Wouldn't that be a dream? And honestly, i got to have my new packages. The only problem is, Mm -hmm. like you were saying for me, is that also means I need to have a wide selection of software availability. Now, uh right. software.opensus.org makes this uh much easier. Like there are telegram packages for 13 for version like 13.3 or whatever of OpenSUSE. Mm-hmm. So there is there is some software being more available than there used to be. Now, that's nice. But for me, it's still sitting in that spot where it's not quite there yet. However, However, it's so damn close, that I almost feel like I could start to make that compromise that I'll make sometimes yep. when I feel like something's going in the right direction. And if I just give yep. it a year or six months, it might be there.
1: And I'm sort of investing early. I, I tell you what I've come down on is, uh, you know, there, it's, it's other little things too. When I, when I lock the screen, it actually, it will show me my, uh, my battery percentage. Right on the on the lock screen. So when the one thing I noticed is when after I got suspended working, I would open my computer back up and I would say, hey, I have 43 percent battery life. Man, is that useful to see? Right. The first thing I do when I when I go to log into my computer is know how much battery I'm starting with little things like that make me think that this would make a killer, a killer, massive deployment uh, distro. If I had if I had a client that came to me and said, no, we need you to deploy 50 workstations. I tell you what, I'd really, really be considering uh, OpenSUSE because, A, I think that the interface is uh, is enough like Windows that people that are used to Windows aren't going to complain as much. B, I think it's really, really, really well polished and you don't run into some of the the tiny little gotchas that you get in some of the other distros, which I thought was a really cool thing. Uh, And thirdly, I guess when I'm sitting down it, I feel like I'm at a enterprise workstation computer and not a personal home desktop. Right. I don't know what it is for me that does that, but that's what I think. It's a, it feels like a workstation. I completely
0: agree. And, it sounds like you're really in some ways enjoying the hell out of KDE would you be
1: would you consider kicking the tires on the latest Kubuntu after this? because then you get yeah you know you know I would I would I, you know, and I think that would be good if we kind of went around and and, and, and checked some of those out. My biggest hit on KDE at the moment is I mean it'll be clear in this episode alone as people are sending me messages I mean even if if you look here and maybe I'm doing something wrong, somebody can point something out everything. Everything other than the ins. Oh, maybe here this got turned up. But see, I didn't turn that up. I had this down before. Mm. We'll see if that works now. What is it? Um, I can't. I don't I, see it. What is it? It's uh, event sounds. I uh, there was yeah. uh, there was an event sound slider which I previously had down and now was somehow up. So we'll put that down and see if I still get notifications. But that was that was the one thing that I couldn't figure out how to how to I guess get around. Even simple things like the uh, simple things like the. Dis- Display manager uh, allowed me to stack two uh, displays to get it to go to the output, which is a little different. But once you know about it, it's no big deal.
0: What you could do, Noah, uh, is uh, kind of go to when I'm under when I'm using KDE, I uh, my backup is use Puva Control, right? I install Puva Control yes. and then I just don't even bother with the KDE sound setting stuff. And that kind of that mitigates some of the complaints you're having, but it's still kind of a it's still a mess. Um so, anyways, that's we actually are kind of in the back of our minds brewing together a whole series of distro reviews you guys might be hearing about in the in the near future. And I'd be curious to see if you get a little more experience with another Plasma desktop because it sounds like you haven't used Plasma Five a ton either, which is very no, interesting. No, and so you landed on a good distro to try out Plasma Five. I did gnome. Yeah, but you picked a you picked a good one. And, and by the way. I, also, the GNOME experience is top notch. Uh, one of the things that I love that they do is when you go to GNOME system settings, you know, just the regular control panel for GNOME, they've integrated mm-hmm. a couple of the really important YAS components. And then right in that same system settings spot, the YAS button is there. So I can just use my GNOME muscle memory to change my settings and find all of the really important KDE configuration tools that I need in one spot. It feels really organized and integrated with the GNOME desktop. And I like that a lot. So that's awesome leap in its beta state is looking pretty impressive. Now the other shoe has to drop. I think the big component is really, it just has to see some user adoption. Once the user adoption occurs, I think the other stuff that we've kind of are noodling around falls into line. And that would be really exciting because fedora projects working on this, Uh, you know, the Ubuntu project has got their massive changes coming with the unity eight desktop and all that down the road. So it is, Such a fascinating time to see some of these iconic distributions re-gearing, right? You've got Fedora re-gearing. They're well into it now. They're well into that. Uh, You've got Ubuntu, who's been working on Mir and the Unity 8 desktop, rewriting on QT and QML and working on mobile. They've been doing that for a couple of years now. And now we've got OpenSUSE, who's re-gearing to sort of this leap and tumbleweed approach, which uh, I think appeals to a lot of people. And and then something else to appreciate about what they're doing here is they have some really sophisticated automated testing. And I don't know how much of it applies to Leap versus Tumbleweed because I just honestly haven't dug into it. But the the testing that happens gets published online, the results get published online, and you can even download a video of the automated test working. So you could actually watch and audit the test process and see what happened. I mean it is it is a enterprise grade totally totally respectable testing system that is going to be a critical component to making something like this a really stable polished release. It's not the only answer, but it's going to be a good component of it. So, no any other uh, kind of closing thoughts on uh on open forty two leap
1: 42.1? I made a really dumb mistake. <clears throat> I was uh I kept typing files to try and open up my file manager <laughs> and of course in KDE it's dolphin. Dolphin. Yeah. And uh <laughs> I, I I remember the first thought that went through my mind is I'm like <laughs> Some distribution doesn't even have a file manager. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. just, that's just you know what happens when you're an idiot. So you
0: know that man, you've been using Unity way too long. When you were yeah, I to... know, I know, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know,
1: it's horrible. Uh
0: And and really, uh, you're kind of plasma. The Plasma Five desktop uh, is just now really kind of coming into its own too. So mm-hmm. it's a really good time to try it out. I think you waited just right. Um, I kind of wish I, I kind of wish I wish I had held off on the Plasma Five desktop because it kind of burned me a little bit, and so I'm not as motivated to try it that's why i went gnome here but i felt like that let me sort of appreciate some of the other aspects so now i'm kind of Mm -hmm. thinking if i get a chance i'd like to try out the kde version of it because gosh no i want to like that so i might give that a spin and i would encourage you to try out maybe like a kubuntu and uh, i would encourage the folks at home to stay tuned because uh we're gonna have a series of reviews about different types of distros for different types of workloads coming up in the near future and uh, there might be some kde action in there as well as some other desktops too well, well, but we're not going to spoil that. That's for another show. All right, that's the Linux Action Show's look at OpenSUSE's Big Leap. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But before we get out of here, we're going to do a little feedback. And this one came in from Micro 89 on the subreddit. He says, uh, for this week's last, Chris and Noah should do a review of SoloS. Well, uh, we not, we obviously already, you already know we're doing an open Sousa leap review, but he says for those who have followed solo for the past year or longer, and remember when it was named evolve OS and the obstacles that solo S team faced when they had to change their name for dumb reasons due to a certain group of people. But through it all, solo S team has preserved, has persevered to solo S 1.0 being released on October 1st. Dun, 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 In fact, we, uh, we had the maintainer on uh, a uh, a couple of months ago, um, so Solo West is actually on our near term distro review list. I'm not going to say too much more than that. So stay tuned. The reason why uh, we're not reviewing it today is uh, we like to try to use them at least for a week, if not more, sometimes more if possible. Sometimes I go as long as a month if possible. Uh, so we're, we're, we'll do Solo West soon. It's on the docket and uh, Micer,
1: stay tuned, I will say. Noah, you want to take the next one? Tom V writes in and he says, hi, guys. First of all, I love the show. been a listener for a long time now and loving it. I've also heard you guys talk several times about DigitalOcean. This is where my question comes in. I'm looking to deploy my own email server on, an eight, uh, on a, on a DigitalOcean droplet. But which one should I choose? Could it be hosted on a $10 rig? I'd like it to run a Ubuntu server with appropriate mail server software, postfix, etc., But this needs some further research. Hmm. If you guys could shine some light on this, I would be very grateful. So I actually went and and just did a a quick test, a quick test. First of all, um, I want to make a disclaimer. If anyone is thinking about running their own mail server and you think it's going to be a function of setting your email server up and then using it, you're in for a host of surprises. We maintain a mail server for our office and it is a beyond a gigantic headache. The overhead involved with keeping a mail server running and keeping yourself off of blacklists so that your mail actually gets places is a headache. I don't wish on my worst enemy. If, however, you choose to take that on anyway, I uh, went through uh, the installation of iRedMail. It's a free and open source mail server, and it will run, uh, at least on small scale, because I guess I didn't try it for very long, on a $5 droplet. So oh, you yeah. can uh, spin up a five dollar droplet and and run iRed mail server and it'll work just fine. The cheapest droplet they have, and of course if you use our promo code, then you're gonna get your first two months of your I, mail server. I for, don't. Free. I mean, it's been a long time since
0: I've built my own mail server because that sounds like a horrible time. But um, yes, I would I would be amazed if a five dollar droplet couldn't handle thousands and thousands of emails a day. Yeah, it's yeah. just yeah, it's just something that these computers have been doing for so long. SMTP, IMAP, and POP are just not. Super intensive. The only time it starts to get even a little bit intensive, you start
1: doing some sort of spam filtering. But even that is just not that big of a deal. Well, I guess the reason it gave me pause was not necessarily the protocol or the transfer. I guess I was a little concerned about if you start getting uh, if you start getting email attachments, especially if you're the kind of person that IMAPS everything and so everything is stored on the on the yeah, server. But even then, you're talking you're talking what fifteen gigs of email after you install the OS and stuff. I mean, that's a lot of email. Yeah, that's true, but. Uh, I don't know. Well, I, I, you know what? Give it a shot and see what happens. I, I think that you'll get a long, long way before you ever uh, yeah. before you ever really run out. And even if you did, uh, you were talking about doing a $10 droplet. That's twice as good as what I'm talking about. Um, but I don't think the setting up part isn't what scares me. It's everything after that. That is is the pain.
0: I agree. However, I will say this. I, there is a definite scenario where I think setting up your own mail server makes a ton of sense. And that is if you're doing it to learn for a job or a job interview and you think it's going to be something they might ask you. Yes. There, yes. It is good experience. It is, you know, cuz oh, you're going to have to figure out, you know, reverse lookups, you're going to have to make sure you get all of your DNS squared away, you're going to have to make you're going to have to do the black uh blacklist management stuff. And something else to keep in mind is that VPSs sometimes go on lists, the entire blocks of IPs. Now, thankfully the more reputable the uh the provider is, the less likely that is to happen, but these lists are just maintained by by dudes and so if a dude gets a hair up his butt and wants to block an entire range of IPs, he yep. can do that. And people subscribe to
1: these lists and then they they share them around. I mean, it is a bit of a process sometimes. So, I do agree. Now, Q in the ch- Q in the chat room says that um I read mail will install Clam IV by default. Therefore, they advise using at least a one gigabyte of RAM, thus a $10 rig. I ran into issues using a $5 rig myself after I ran for a couple of weeks or so. Yeah, if you're going to start doing Clam,
0: yeah, that might be worth it because you think about how that's going to have to work, right? Clam is going to have to load the contents of the email into RAM right. and scan it there. So if you're going to do antivirus, you might want you might want more RAM.
1: And and apparently that's default, so I guess go with the go with the ten dollar. There you go. Then. There you go. All right, Noah, hey, where can
0: people check you out throughout the week when you're not doing Linux unplugged or Linux action show?
1: I am on Twitter at kernelinux and of course Facebook.com slash kernelinux and Google plus slash Noah Chalaya or plus Noah Chalaya. how do they do that? Something like that, Noah. Who knows? Something like that. You got a new Twitter handle, I do. didn't
0: you, Chris L A S? It's not that new anymore, but it's uh, if you if you followed me like six months ago, you have to re-follow me again because we moved Twitter accounts around. So that way, I have my own personal account, and we have Jupiter Signal for the network. Uh, and also, you know what? I'll give a plug for uh, this week's Linux Unplugged, outstanding episode, and uh, Noah hosted that. And uh, the
1: guest, the guest that I lined up, showed up. Right, I think I didn't actually get to hear that part of the yeah. episode. Oh, yeah, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. We talked about, uh, we talked about, we, if you liked the automate, if you liked the automation episode we did last week, you have to go listen to unplug this week because we brought a guy in that talks about an open source light socket. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. I'm also, mm-hmm. I'm going
0: to give a plug for the Rover log. Uh, the road trip is coming to a close, but, uh, there are 11 episodes up right now. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Rover to find the live map of where I am at with the mobile Rover. And also to see those episodes and I'll probably put out at least one more to sort of do a wrap up of the whole road trip. And uh, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback. So if you haven't checked it out yet, you might want to, because people seem to be enjoying it. And the other nice thing is they're pretty short, so it's not a huge waste of your time either. And uh, you could also email the show, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, choose Linux Action Show from the drop down. Also go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. That's where you can submit stories or an open source project that's totally badass or a, a desktop app pick that we should totally feature um all that stuff also your comments are good just to get your your thoughts and insights on the stories so uh, like there was uh there was a story in the subreddit today about uh a rumor that uh, Microsoft is going to buy Canonical and the comment thread is pretty precious in that one it's like if you, <laughs> like if we like not that we were going to run that story but if we were ever like tempted to run that story like you read through the comments and they're like Yeah, these guys are right. We would not want to feature this story. So even your insights and your votes over there are appreciated. com. And last but not least, I'll give a plug for the Patreon because we have some seriously ambitious goals at patreon.com slash today. And uh, I think when I'm back in the studio next week, we'll probably do a uh, update on the uh, format experiment that we've been uh, trying with Linux Action Show and give you guys an update on that uh, when I am back at the JB1 studio. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here
1: next week. Okay, all right. Do not I... confirm when installing additional packages. Continue. So now it should install, right? No. It doesn't install. Why would I install? Well, that's cute. Now it says installation aborted by user. It when knows do, you I don't, don't know. want to break your freedoms. I guess. Man, this is frustrating. All I want to do is install Google Chrome. (laughs) I feel Uh, like it shouldn't be that difficult. (laughs) Uh Okay, an application wishes to install. No, sorry. It's it's
0: pacman s Google Chrome.
1: Okay, all right, all right. (laughs) right. Command pacman responded with screw you. Go (laughs) use Arch. These error messages make absolutely no sense. Installation was aborted by user. I didn't abort the installation. I double clicked on the package. What are you talking about?